0: I would like to read for you the first 11 verses of Romans 5, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, turn to that uh, passage and read with us, or you may share a Bible if someone seated alongside has one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, this good word from the Apostle. We ask that you'd help us to understand it and to fully appreciate it and rejoice in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When the children were singing, I uh, thought of something my kids used to to ask from time to time. Uh, They'd say, hey, Dad, have we grown up yet? That's a good question. It's a good question for so-called grown-ups to ask from time to time. And that's the question that Paul answers in this text that we'll be looking at this morning. It is, to a certain extent, a measure of our maturity. It tells us whether or not we are fully grown up in Christ. You'll notice that uh, Paul begins this section with the uh, conjunction, therefore. That's the sort of thing you would expect from the Apostle Paul. He's a very logical Person And he places these conjunctions in strategic places to help us follow the argument. And the question we need to ask at this point is, what's the therefore? Therefore, what, is, what does it mean? Well, what it does is put us back into the previous context. Chapter 5, 1 through 11, uh, follows logically from something that Paul has said prior to this text. And what he's been talking about in chapters uh, 1 through 5 is our justification. He paints a very grim picture of of the world, the human condition. He says that we're all very sinful. We're all ungodly people. But he has justified us. Now, for those of you that have been here for the last six weeks or so, you could probably explain to me very well what justification means. But in case you're a newcomer, or you haven't been listening, or you've been asleep, I would like to repeat for you what Paul means by justification. He means this. God has declared us ungodly people righteous on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. It's a free gift. It's not something we work for. It's something that he freely provides because he's gracious. He has declared us righteous. You see, the the problem as we've been discussing the last few weeks, is how can God be the moral governor of the universe? How can he condemn sin? How can he judge sin and save sinners? He loves us sinful people, but he hates our sin. So to be fair, to be a just judge, he has to judge sin, but how can he relieve us from the burden and responsibility of our sin? What he does is take, take the responsibility for it. Remember the illustration I used of the judge? I'm standing before the dock. The judge condemns me, judges me guilty, and he finds me a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. judge walks uh, out of the courtroom into his chambers, comes back with a change of clothes. He has his business suit on. He takes out his, his checkbook. He writes out a check for a million and one hundred dollars, and he pays the fine for me, which is precisely what God has done. He judges sin, and then he takes the place of the sinner to pay the penalty for sin, And then he declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's death. Now, that's what justification means. God has declared us ungodly people righteous on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. All we have to do is believe it. We take him at his word. We believe that he's serious about this thing, and we accept this gift. Now, Paul says, therefore, because you've been justified by faith, or as he puts it in verse 25 of of chapter four, he who was delivered over to death for our sins was raised to life for our justification. He was put to death for our sin. The resurrection of Jesus is the uh, puts authenticity to the whole thing. It demonstrates that God accepts the sacrifice. His sense of outraged justice has been satisfied. We know that because Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Paul says. Because we have been justified by faith, certain things become true for us. Now, what follows uh, is a, a list of four results of our justification. But more importantly for Paul, he's talking not so much about the results as our reaction to the results. He says this is something to get excited about. You'll notice that word rejoice reoccurring through the passage. We rejoice. We rejoice in this. We rejoice in that justification is something to get very excited about. So while we're going through this passage, if you get excited, it's perfectly all right for you to, to, to shout a very quiet, demure hallelujah or something. I know this is a very dignified bunch, very staid, very proper. But if you get overcome by emotion, it's all right to say amen or or, or yippee or whatever comes to your mind. When, when I lived in California, there was a young Chinese woman that met Christ as a result of a of a Bible study and the teacher was going through this uh, passage, going through Romans 5, and he came to the first result of our justification. And this uh, dear young woman uh, didn't know any religious words. She'd never been in a church before, and so she just shouted, whoopee, when she got to this point. So if you feel like shouting, that, that, that's all right. Just feel free. Don't wake up the person next to you. you know. keep, keep it calm, but it's all right. You, you can express some excitement over this uh, over this passage. By the way, I got a letter from someone this past week uh, saying that uh, he was concerned because we have developed into a yuppie church. Uh, It concerned me so much, I'm thinking about selling my BMW. (laughs) Actually, I don't have a BMW. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, even if we're a yuppie church, it's all right. You you, you, You can get excited here. Now, I want you to look at the results of our justification. The first is in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now, some translations of this uh, text put it in the form of an exhortation. Let us have peace with God. And that may be the better reading. We're not sure. Whatever it is that Paul is saying here, he's saying this. Let's have what we have. I, I like the way J.B. Phillips translates this phrase. Let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God. That's what he's saying. Let's understand it. We have peace with God. And there are two ways of looking at peace. One is to look at it subjectively, tranquility, peace of heart and mind. And certainly we, we have that from time to time as a result of our, of our relationship to, uh, to Christ. And it's clear that the editors of the NIV uh, believe that this is the meaning of the word peace because they entitle this paragraph Uh, peace and joy two subjective emotions. But for myself, I I think Paul is talking here not about subjective peace, not about tranquility, but rather objective peace, because Paul later says we were God's enemies. And now we've been reconciled. The point is that the war is over. We, We don't have to be afraid of God anymore. We don't have to feel guilty and skulk around and hide and stay out of his way. You see, God has never been mad at us. He's always been mad at sin. But throughout eternity, he's looked at the cross. And he he didn't have to display his wrath toward us. His wrath was alleviated. But the problem is, we're afraid of God. We have become God's enemies. We're like the roadrunner. Every time he shows up, we take off. Started in the garden. When Adam realized he was guilty, he began to cover up, and he hid from God. We've been hiding ever since. We don't like God around. It's too condemning. It makes us feel too guilty. I remember once when our oldest son, Randy, was uh, f- afraid one night. I went into the room, and, and I reminded him as God was in the room with him, it scared him half to death. The kid didn't sleep all night. Didn't want God in the room with him. And perhaps you feel that way. You don't want God in the same community with you because he knows what you're like. You're hiding from him, but but Paul wants us to understand that hostilities have ceased. We're at peace with God. He's not at war with us. We're not at war with him. Everything is okay. It's all right. We have peace with God. Let's grasp the fact, Paul says, that we have peace with God. Uh, a couple of years ago, I told a story about a friend of mine, Jay Bathurst. And some of you will recall the story. And I apologize for telling it again, except it's such a great story. I just have to. I thought and thought and thought this past week about a, a way to illustrate this truth. And this one kept coming back to me, and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. Because it happened to me. That makes it a lot more powerful. For me, anyway. Uh, and when we lived in California, I had a friend. His name was Jay Bathurst. He was in high school at the time. He was a wild kid. Came out of a, an affluent home, but uh, just never could get things uh, Nothing worked well for him throughout his whole life he had trouble in school, trouble relating to his peers he 's had a very difficult time. His family had a, a grapefruit orchard right next door to the house. He used to go out and pick grapefruits and throw them at police cars when they 'd come by and then he 'd run and uh, he 's pretty fast in his feet, so he always got away when he 'd get in big trouble he 'd come down to the church and crawl up in the attic and go to sleep and stay there all night. One day I walked into my office. And there was a big hole in the ceiling. I looked up and all this trash was lying all over my desk. And I, and I got up on my desk and stuck my head through the hole and looked around. And I realized what happened. Jay had been walking around up there. I could see his footprints in the dust. And he'd fallen through the ceiling. And my first thought was, I'm going to get that guy? This, this is the last straw. He's going to pay for this. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, no, this is the way we can win this kid. Let's just demonstrate some love for him. So I talked it over with the staff and we paid to get the ceiling repaired and then I went out to find Jay, and I couldn't find him. Every time he'd see me, he'd run the other direction. I'd go to school to try to meet him, and, and I'd see him run out to the parking lot and get in his car and take off. Or I'd go over to his house and knock on his door, and he'd take off, off out the back door, and he was scared to death of me. And one day, he happened to show up down at the church, came through the parking lot in his car, and I went around the other side and blocked his way out so he couldn't get out. And, and I said, hey, Jay, I've been looking for you. And he said, I'll bet you, yeah. Yeah. And I said, yeah, come on inside, I want to show you something. And he said, I'll bet you do. And he walked into my office, and he wouldn't look up. He kept looking at the ground. I said, hey, Jay, look, look up. And finally looked up. And you know what, what was the first thing he said? How much do I owe you? I said, not a thing. Not a thing. I said, Jay, I just want you to know we love you. We were prepared to see you. Everything's all right. You don't need to be afraid of me anymore or anybody else on the staff here. We, we just love you. We want you to come around. Please come around. We want to be your friend. And you see, that's precisely what has happened to us. We have fallen through God's ceiling. We've trashed the universe. And then we feel guilty about it. And we're hiding. And God becomes the hound of heaven, as Francis Thompson put it. He tracks us down relentlessly, ruthlessly. Tracks us down, as the psalmist put it in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. All the days of my life, he keeps seeking us out. Turn around, come back, be my friend. I'm not angry. I love you. And then we look at the cross and we realize that he means what he said. We've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The war is over. That's why Paul says, let's grasp the fact that we have peace with God. Have you grasped that fact? If you have, it's all right to say a very demure hallelujah. Hallelujah. The second thing, uh, oh, I should tell you, verse 2, he points out that we access this uh, gift, this gift of grace, this justification in, uh, in our peace with God by faith. That's the only point of verse 2a. Though through whom, that is through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace, this gift of justification in which we now stand. You see, he's rejoicing over his present position. He's rejoicing over his peace with God. He has been forgiven. How do you get into this relationship? How do you become the friend of God? You just believe. (laughs) You just believe that what Jesus Christ did satisfied the Father. So we're his friend. He's our friend, and we're his. It all comes by faith. It does not come... By any action on our part other than believing. We don't have to be godly. He justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith. Now, that's the first result. We have peace with God. We rejoice in our present position. The second thing we have is a hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our future prospects. We rejoice in our present peace. And we rejoice at what's coming. That's our hope. Now, this word glory that Paul uses so frequently in the book of Romans, uh, as we've defined it as simply the expression of God's character. God's glory is what he is manifest. It's the full manifestation of the character of God, which is what we were destined for. Do you understand that? When God created Adam and Eve, he designed us so that we could manifest His glory, contain His person, and reflect His character throughout the world—that was, that was, was our destiny. But as Paul puts it in Romans three twenty-three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Beginning with Adam, from that point on, every human being that graced the face of the earth has fallen short of the glory of God. We have not been Godlike. We have not been Christlike. But one of these days, that glory is going to be restored to us. One of these days we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and we're going to be just like him. Paul says in, in, in Romans 8, this light, momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. John says, uh, uh, now you are the sons of God. Do, do you realize that? That right now you are a son of God. I told my men that uh, last Wednesday, I, I wanted to make that point. I said, you men are sons of God. I said, you don't look like sons of God. You look like a bunch of rasty old men. Someone right underneath me said, so do you. <laughs> He's right. We don't look like sons of God. That's why John goes on to say, it does not yet appear what we are. It's not manifest what we are. You just look like an ordinary, common, down-to-earth, garden-variety people. But... John says, we know when we see him, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There will be this transformation at that moment into his character. We're being remade now, reformed, transformed into his character, and that process will be completed when we see the Lord Jesus. We will be like him. Paul says, that's our hope, and I rejoice in that hope. And he's not thinking of hope as some sort of contingency. He's not saying, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope I'm going to make it. Hope in the New Testament sense is, is an eager anticipation for something that's very, very real, something that's assured. Our destiny is secure. It's going to happen. We just have to wait for it. That's all. That's what hope means. One of these days we're going to be like him. You know, that's, what, that's one of the things that, that removes the sting of death for me. I am really not afraid to die. I shrink from the pain, as I assume all of you do, and I don't particularly want to suffer. But I don't mind dying. As a matter of fact, as G.K. Chesterton said, I look forward to it with colossal joy. When, when so- we go through something like the crash of Continental Flight 1713, and we grieve for the people that have lost their loved ones, we suffer with them. But, but I, you know, w- as Christians, we shouldn't look at that and say, Oh, I hope it doesn't happen to me, because we're not afraid to die. You see, that's what causes us to rejoice in this life, no matter how tough things get to be, no matter how difficult things become, we have this hope, the hope of heaven, that no one can take away from us. When we'll get the thing for which we were destined, the glory for which God created us, we'll be like him. And that and that's a cause for rejoicing. Ray Stebman tells a wonderful story about a, a man in, who lived in North Dakota. And uh, one winter, uh, it was about 30 below, and there were, there were two or three feet of snow on the ground. And he was buttoned up in his house, and he was miserable. The sky was gray. The snow was gray. His soul was gray. And, and he looked out the window and about a quarter of a mile down the road to, to where his mailbox was, and he saw the mailman deliver some mail. And he thought, oh, goody, a, a, a break in my day. So he bundles up. He gets all of his cold-weather gear on, straps on his snowshoes, and pads his way out to the, to the uh, mailbox. A quarter of a mile. Opens up the mailbox one catalog. And of all things, a seed catalog. <laughs> a burpee seed catalog. And he opens it up, and the contrast between the flowers and the springtime look on the pages in the snow was really aggravating for a moment. But then it dawned on him, spring was coming. One of these days, the snow began to melt. The birds will begin to sing. The flowers will begin to push their way up through the ground. And the grass will turn green and the breezes will be warm. And summer's coming. Spring's just right around the corner. And it lifted him out of his discontent. Now that's what this hope does for us. It it takes us out of the winter of our discontent. It takes us out of the coldness and the grimness of life. And we look forward to what's coming. Day spring is at hand. And even though things are tough and hard now, heaven is our home. That's our hope. We're bound for glory. It's a song we used to sing a lot in Young Life Club. It captures well this uh, this thought. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Not here. In Emmanuel's land. Oh, Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy, mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Now... Um, we, we rejoice in our peace with God. We look back to the fact that we're forgiven. And we look forward to the fact that our destiny is, is secure. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only this, Paul says, we also rejoice in our sufferings. How about that? We rejoice in our present peace. We rejoice in our future prospects, and we rejoice in our personal problems. They said, "Oh, wait a minute. Is Paul some kind of ivory chair the theologian who isn't in the real world? He doesn't know my world. He doesn't know how much it hurts. He doesn't know how broken my heart is. He doesn't know how I sigh and how much pain I'm experiencing. Oh, yes, he does. You can bet your life he does. Jesus told Paul on the way to Damascus that he would suffer many things for Jesus' sake. He knew the road would be hard. And everywhere he went, he was battered and beaten and stoned and whipped and thrown into prison. And he was shipwrecked. And life was tough for the Apostle Paul. And I know it's tough for you as well. Life is hard for many of you. Just last week, weekend before last, I was speaking... I was down in California speaking at a careers conference for young single men and women, and I, I was talking about a good self-image and how we get it, and mostly I was talking about centering on God and learning to see ourselves as God sees us. And Saturday night I talked about how hard life is, and even though life is tough, we need to remember how God sees us. And I painted a very grim picture: you know, life, life is hard, life's difficult. Many of them were victims of shattered marriages. Some were women that had been used and thrown away. and Some were victims of drug abuse and alcoholism. And They, they had very troubled lives. I knew life was hard, and I tried to be realistic and paint it for what it is and, and remind them that, that we don't get our sense of worth from what's happening around us or what people are doing to us, but we, we get it from looking, from understanding how God looks at us. Sunday morning, I was eating breakfast, and one of the men that had been in the, in the session the Saturday before said, That was so depressing. I was bummed out, he said. How-, how could you say those things? And I said, well, Tell me a little bit about your life. He said, Well, a couple of years ago, my wife ran away, and I'm a single parent. I'm raising two small children all by myself. And he starts spelling out this tale of, Whoa, life had really hammered him. And I, I, I said, you know, I, I'm just trying to be realistic, that's all. Isn't, haven't you found life hard? Yeah, but I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> we have to talk about it. Well, we don't need to be preoccupied with it, but let's be realistic. We all have personal problems. But Paul says we can rejoice in them. We do not have to like them. It's not the problems that, that produce joy. Actually, the song that we sang a moment ago is wrong. It said that, it, you know, our, our problems produce joy. No. No, Paul didn't like the things that happened to him. He wasn't a masochist. He, you know, when the rocks were bouncing off his head, he didn't say, hit me again, hit me harder, I like it. it feels so good. He tried to avoid pain whenever he could. He'd flee when he knew people were, were out to kill him. Uh, You see, he he was just realistic, that's all. And he had learned not to rejoice in his problems, but to rejoice in the fact that his problems were productive. That's the point that Paul is making. He knew something. You see that? We rejoice in our sufferings because. Because why? Because we like to suffer? Because it feels good? No, Hebrews says no suffering is pleasant. No, it's because we know something. It's not that we feel something, because feelings ebb and flow. Even our affection, our feeling for God, comes and goes. But facts never change, and Paul says we know some facts. And what we know is that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces endurance. It makes you tough. That's what he's saying. Do you, do you want to grow up and be mature? Do you want to be able to withstand the gales that blow? Do you want to be firm and stable and strong and tough in the face of adversity? Well, there isn't any other way to get strong and tough in the to face of adversity. When I was in the military, we were trained for uh, two months by a artillery unit that had been in the Po Valley in South Korea. Their position was overrun. They had to fight their way out. They, 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 most of their escape route was through hand-to-hand combat. The, their casualties were very heavy. They took a lot of losses. And they were brought back. They were rotated back to the States to, to train other people. And they were our cadre for eight weeks. Some of the toughest guys I've ever been around. They were seasoned veterans. They'd seen combat. Now, I, I never went into combat. The only battle I ever fought was the Battle of the Chow Line. But I'll tell you what, if I were going to go in combat, I know who I'd want to go in with, those guys. I mean, they had that mean look in their eye. They'd been there. They were veterans. They were tough. When I was a kid, my parents used to take me to the operetta in, in Texas, and one that I remember was, I, I think it's called Naughty Marietta, and it's about uh, Royal Canadian Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And, and, and these guys would come out with their frilly, you know, shirts on and their red coats, and and they would dance around on their toes like this. Those are not the guys I want to go into battle with. I like these tough guys. The guys, you know, with the black stuff all over their face and the fatigues on and the M-16 over their shoulder and that that mean look in their eye. They're battle-tested veterans. That's what Paul is talking about. You see that? You want to have endurance, you want to be tough, you want to be able to stand like a thousand year oak when the winds blow. Then, then you have to suffer. You have to suffer. It's the only way. Can't get it any other way. Now it's not that suffering somehow makes you hard and tough inside. What suffering does is make you cling to Christ. You just hang on for all you're worth. And you begin to discover how adequate He is and how sufficient He is and how He can take you through the toughest, most difficult, most depressing circumstances. And that's how you get tough. You learn to trust Him. There's a story in the Gospels that I always come back to time and time again. It's the story of the disciples going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says to, the, to His disciples, let's go across to the other side. They get in a the boat. They had no idea. No idea what was going to happen. But you know what happened. You've read the story. They got in the middle of the boat. One of those storms swept across the Sea of Galilee. The little boat began to toss around, began to take water. And uh, the disciples panicked. They were running around the boat bailing and and putting on their life jackets. And they, they figured this was it. We're going under. And the Lord was down in the hold of the little boat, sound asleep. And they went down and shook him. And they said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? Jesus got up. Shook his head to clear the sleep out of his out of his mind, and he and he faced into that gale and he said, All right, that's enough of that. Hush. And and the wind abated. Sea became like glass. And all the disciples said, Wow. No one ever did it like this before. <laughs> now in my mind, I can envision a number of trips across the Sea of Galilee. We know they took several. They were, they were on that sea a lot, and those storms struck very quite frequently. And I'm sure you know, after two or three times like that, when the waves struck, the disciples would say, Well, you know, they'd be scared, they'd be hanging on, but they'd say, It's all right, we got Jesus in the boat with us. He told us we're going to go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side. May get a little rough. I may get seasick. I may mean, not be real happy about this trip, but we're going to make it through. See, and that's what happens. That's why Paul says we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, it gives us that staying power, that capacity to to hang in there and be tough and to stick with things and to do what's right, even though we're hurting. And, and it can only come this way, it can only come through, through suffering. And then he says that perseverance produces character, an approved character. He uses an interesting word a so Greek word is found on the bottom of vases. You find it a lot on ostraca, the little bits of broken jars that archaeologists unearth. It's like our good housekeeping seal of approval. Someone, some consumer advocate would go around the stores and pick up a jar and look at it, hold it up to the light. See if there were any lines in it, because what a, a unscrupulous merchants would, uh, they'd fire a vase, and if it cracked, they'd fill it with wax, and they'd glaze it. You wouldn't have any idea that it was faulty. They'd hold it up to the sun like that. And uh, if it didn't have any cracks in it, if you were in Rome, they'd write in Latin, senna, without sera, wax. That's where our word sincere comes from, without wax. If you were in the Greek world, they'd write ducky on the bottom. Well, that's this word. Dakimos, an approved character. It's God's stamp of approval. You're like one of those suitcases that they drop out of an airplane from 30,000 feet and it bounces down the road and runs. Over, and a caterpillar runs over it and they throw it in an ape cage and the apes try to rip it apart. And then they pull the thing out and show it and they say, Not a scratch. Went through unscathed. Say, Dakimos. Approved character. And approved character, he says, produces hope. And again, uh, he's talking about something that's certain something that's sure there's no note of contingency here that that hope is a boundless optimism it's irrepressible optimism about the future we know that god is at work to make us into the kind of people that he longs for us to be as the, as the kids saying you know he's not finished with us yet but we know that he's at work producing the good thing that He wants in our life. And secondly, one of these days we're going to be with Him, and then we're going to have it all. And and, and so when you go through that process, you suffer and you cling to God and you discover His sufficiency, it toughens you. And, and then you, your character begins to blossom. You become winsome and you become sweeter and more mellow and easier to live with. And then there's that sense of hope and anticipation and, and expectancy about the future, sort of sort of tough-mindedness that's given to us. One of my kids who will remain nameless because he's sitting down here in the front row. Uh, when he was a little guy, he was a tough little Turk. And, and uh, the neighborhood kids were always beating up on him. And I heard all this yelling one day, and I went out in the front, and he was lying flat on his back. And these kids were twins. They were his age. One of them was sitting on his head, just beating the stuffings out of him. Another was sitting on his stomach, wailing away on him. And before I could get out there, the next-door neighbor, the, the, the boy's, Mother came running out. Brian was on the on the ground taking this terrible licking, and he looks up at the boy's mother as she runs up and she he says, "It's all right, Georgia. I won't hurt him <clears throat> <laughs> that's what that's what Paul means, I think, by hope. <laughs> you know we're down on the ground, and we we're, we're just getting stomped into the turf, and we're taking a terrible beating is it all right okay I'm not, it's alright because I know where I'm going I know what God has in mind for me now that's something to rejoice about you, you can shout hallelujah if you'd like to about that now, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say hope does not disappoint us it's not the sort of hope that we that, that we think of when we use the word hope it's not, it's not uncertain it'll come through it doesn't let us down Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And then there follows some, some unusual verses which are often used for evangelistic messages and, and, I, and, I, and appropriately so. It's a wonderful evangelistic message here. But in context, Paul's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians. And the point he's making is that the way we know that things are going to turn out right is that God loves us. And the way we know that God loves us is by looking at the cross. Now listen as I read as I read these verses again. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. First mention in the old in, in the book of Romans of God's love. First mention of the Holy Spirit too, but first mention of God's love. And it's appropriately placed. Because we need to understand when the going gets tough that God still loves us. Because what happens is that we look at our circumstances and we think God is down on us. Or we look at our circumstances and we think God is not good. And we start railing at God and blaming him for the fact that he took our child. Or he took our job. Or he took our health. And we get bitter and resentful and angry. And so Paul says, while you're going through this painful experience and your heart is breaking, remember, God loves you. He's poured out that love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And the way we know that he loves us is because he died for us. Follow his argument. Verse 6, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that's the way we were. Christ died for the ungodly, that's the way we were. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. He's talking about an upright, proper uptight righteous person. You hardly you know, you wouldn't want to die for someone like that necessarily. Though for a good man, someone who's warm, someone who's kindly, someone who's gentle, a good friend, someone might possibly dare to die. It's conceivable that some of you here in this audience would die for a good friend, your husband or your wife, or your certain your children or or someone else. That's conceivable. But listen to this God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So don't look at your circumstances, for goodness sake. That will never tell you anything about the character of God. Look at the cross. If you want to see what God is like, just keep looking at the cross. It's the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever known. A lot of ways say, I love you. But the greatest expression of love the world has ever seen is when God put his own life on the line and went to the cross for us. That's his way of saying, I love you. Now listen to this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Do you understand what he's saying? If Christ died for us while we were sinners, if he demonstrated his love when we were at enmity with him, when we were his enemies... How does he feel about us now that we're his friends? You see what he's saying? If he demonstrated his love then, certainly he loves us now. So we must never take our circumstances to be an indication that God does not love us. He likes you. And he loves you. And the fact that you're suffering should never dissuade you from that conviction. He loves you. He has poured out that love through the Holy Spirit. He is surrounding you with that love. Which leads Paul to his last statement. He's a good preacher. He keeps adding on. You think he, you know, this would be a good, good spot to end, but he, not only this, and he's got another point. Not only this, he says. He actually, the, the NIV says not only is this so, but it's the same phrase that he's used early, earlier, not only this. But, and here he uses the strongest adversity that you can use in the Greek language. We also rejoice in God. So we rejoice in our present peace, our present position. We rejoice in our future prospects. We rejoice in the midst of our personal problems. And we rejoice in the person of God. Now, you see, that's the mark of maturity. The final and ultimate measure of a man or woman is that they don't rejoice so much in what God has given them. They just love God. They just worship Him. They're devoted to Him. They don't care if He gives anything. They don't care if He gives good things in this life. They're just attached to Him, and they just keep walking with Him, and they love Him. And Paul says that's the bottom line. We've come to the point that we just rejoice in God. We're like the psalmist in Psalm 131. It says, I'm like a weaned child, a child lying on its mother's breast, not clamoring for, for anything to, to drink. You know, it's not crying. It isn't fretful. It's just quiet and restful. It's surrounded by, by his mother's love. That, that, Paul says that, that's, that's the place that we need to come. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 71, he looks around and sees that the ungodly have everything going their way, and he doesn't have anything, and he he almost loses faith because he says, what did I get out of this deal? I've been true to God, and I've got nothing. And then he goes into the sanctuary, the place of revelation, and he realizes what he has. He has God, and they don't. And that's what makes life worthwhile. So it just comes to the point that he says, I I rejoice in God. I don't care what happens to me. I have God. That's enough. That's all I need. Let me give one more illustration, then I'm done. I used to travel a lot more than I do now. I've gotten to be a real homebody as I've gotten older. I don't like travel. Avoid it if I possibly can. When my children were younger, I would take off on trips, speaking trips usually and I always look forward to coming back. Caroline would bring the, the kids down and I'd get off the plane and they'd come running down the down the little uh, walkway and they'd grab me and that was always a, a great moment. You know the first thing they'd say to me? What'd you bring me, Daddy? Say, you know. You start shaking your heads even even before I What'd you bring me, Daddy? That's a mark of immaturity. You expect that. My kids are all grown up now, and and this is the first time in a long time that we're going to have Thanksgiving all together, and and it's a great time for us. You know, these guys never ask me for anything anymore because they're grown up. They just love me. I don't know why, but they just love me. It's a mark of maturity, and that's the place to which God wants to bring us. You know, we start out early on discovering we're forgiven, and We rejoice in that. It's so good to be over all that guilt and all that garbage in our life. And we don't have to worry about facing the judgment of God. Oh, it's so good to be forgiven and to be free. And then uh, we start thinking about the future prospects of heaven and home and going to be with the Lord. And we start thinking about storing up treasure up there. Not putting our roots down here. But... Sometimes we're like the old cot that I slept in for 18 months while I was in the military. It was firmly attached on both ends, but it sagged in the middle. And we sag in the middle. We can't, we can't figure out what's going on now in this life, and we're getting battered, and we're getting hurt, and things are going our way. And, and then we discover that all this is working for us. It's not something negative. It's something positive. It's producing. An approved character, a buoyant, optimistic spirit, and then finally we, we come to realize that really it's God who did it all, and that we should not look at Him as as a, a someone to keep dispensing good things, but just a good person that we love, and we begin to worship Him. Now these are the results of justification: our present position, our future prospect. We rejoice in our personal problems, and we rejoice in the person of God. These are all results, and I think this is what what Paul wants us to understand from from this passage. But again, he takes us on the next step. He he wants us to ask the question: Where are we in the process? And I ask you that: Where are you? Are you just beginning? Just aware of your forgiveness, or have you moved on to the point that you're looking forward to heaven? Maybe you've learned that God is at work in your life, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, even though things are tough, or maybe you're down the line to the point where you just love him for who he is. But that would be the question. Where are you, and where am I? Let's pray. Would you tell the Lord that you want to grow up? You want to be a mature, grown-up believer. You want to leave behind childish things. Thank him, first of all, for the forgiveness of your sin. Not only sins that are, that are past and present, but future. All the sins that, that you could ever commit were placed upon Christ on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Thank him for that. Rejoice in it. And Thank you for your prospects. You're headed for home. He's prepared a place for us. He's going to meet us there and He's going to be with us forever and we're going to be like Him. And thank Him not for your trouble, but for the fact that your trouble is productive. It's doing something for you. Assure yourself that he's not against you. He's for you. If he offered up his only son for you, will he withhold anything else from you? Thank him for his goodness and, and remind yourself again that he's at work in your life to make something glorious out of it. And then just tell him you love him for himself. Lord, we we very much want to grow. We want to be what you've called us to be. We thank you for this, this clear statement of truth from the Apostle Paul who speaks to us with such clarity and such understanding and such simplicity. We want this to be true of us. We, we know we're not there yet. We know we have a lot of growing to do, but we thank you that that in us and around us, surrounding us, is, is your love, your acceptance, your compassion, your mercy. So we sang earlier, you're not only a mighty God, you're a merciful God. We thank you. And we ask you that you would work through your might to produce in us that good thing that you want help us to grow up.